Welcome to Gateway's podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from Pastor Don Brock. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. Well, as we uh, continue to talk through experiencing uh, Christ together and how we do that, um, and we're going to continue to uh, explore the different ways that in a church you experience Christ together, but also outside the church. And um, today we're going to just talk about that whole connection piece, connecting with other people and how you do that. You know, you, there's so many ways at Gateway you can connect with people. I mean, we have, um, <clears throat> we have our, uh, we, we used to call it senior adult ministry. Now they, they decided they wanted to be called second act ministry. I like that. And uh, so the second act ministry, and uh, we have a widow's ministry. We have men's Bible studies. We have women's Bible studies. Uh, But one of the biggest ways that we do this is through our life groups. And um, we do that on a weekly basis. So we have all these different ways. We have mission projects. Um, We have uh, different types of ministries that are happening that people can connect with each other. So I want to begin to unpackage from scripture, which we always do. Scripture is our foundation of what we talk about and how we view things. So as we talk about experiencing Christ together, let's just look at how the church did it in when Jesus established the church after his resurrection. In Hebrews chapter 10, Here's two verses. Let us think of ways. So he's almost, he's suggesting be creative about this. There's, there's no set, no one set way of doing this, but, uh, be creative in how you think about this. So let us think of ways to motivate one another and to motivate each other to acts of love and good works. So we need to, we need to have it in our mindset, thinking about, all right, what can I do to encourage another believer? What can I do to spur them on, to encourage them in their walk? How can I motivate them uh, to do acts of love and good works? So that's ministry. And that's also ministry, uh, uh, missions. A- and then <clears throat> He follows up with the very next statement, which I think is a big clue as to how this is done. He he says, and let us not neglect our meeting together. So I I think it's kind of like a twofold thing. Uh, He says, let us us think of ways to motivate one another. So there's a one-on-one kind of thing. So how that could actually work out is uh, through your relationships you encourage someone, you say, hey, you know what? Um, I've been watching you and I really see this spiritual gift in your life. Uh, you seem to really have a heart for this. And, and I know of a way that you can use that through the ministries we have at church. Um, you seem to really have a heart for this. You seem to be gifted at this. And, uh, and, and I'd like to help you find a way to utilize that ministry. Um, in fact, 
our our different leaders of the different ministries they they are always kind of looking for people who'll come alongside them and and so that's one of the things they'll do they'll go to them and say hey you you ought to be a part of this ministry in a leadership role or you ought to be doing this and and so we find ways think about ways pray about ways of how we can motivate people to fulfill and reach their purpose why they're even here and, uh, and so how we can encourage them. Uh, he says, so it, let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do. My question is why? Why would you not want to meet with other Christians? Um, I, I can think of some reasons. One, it's easier, you know, or at least we think it is because relationships are not always easy. Relationships can be tough, and um, and sometimes sometimes though we're we're just lazy. We don't want to work at a relationship. Uh, sometimes we don't want people to get too close to us because we're afraid of what they might discover about us. And, and maybe it's not that you're hiding some dark, deep sin, but maybe it's because you're like, you know, what if they don't like me? And I, I can't stand being rejected, so I would rather just be more alone than run the risk of being rejected. And, and he's, so he's saying, look, we should not neglect being with each other, being with other Christians, and some of you are doing that. And uh, now you're not doing that because you wouldn't be here. But um, I, I will say this. This whole period of time in our country, online services has been a great thing. Uh, it's been a godsend because it allows people to stay a part of the church when they're sick, um, when they've gone through illnesses, and, um, and, and they just need to stay separated physically. This, it's been great. It allows people to stay connected to their church. But here's a, here's a sad statistic that's starting to come out nationwide. And that is between 28 and 32% of Christians who were active in church are never going to come back. They're just kind of like, yeah, I'll just stay home and find me a good preacher to listen to. And, and, uh, and then I can do my other things quicker and, 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 but 28 to 32%, that's a pretty large number of people who are con going to continue to do the online from here on out, or maybe not even do the online. They're, they're just checking out. And, and when you're, when your only connection you know, right now my life group still meets online. Um, we're, we're in the process, you know, we, we were getting ready to start meeting back together and uh, in person, but when we, the, uh, you know, this resurge of things, we kind of backed off and said, yeah, we'll just keep meeting online. And at least we're able to talk to each other and we're have to even able to interact each, with each other. But none of us really like it. You know, there's nothing like being in a room together and just talking to each other and laughing together. And so we, even though we are interacting with each other, it's a two-way street on our Zoom uh, Bible study, it's still not the best. The best is being together. Um, 
So don't become a part of that 28 to 32% people that just never, ever go back. So he says, and let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Now, this was written 2,000 years ago, and, uh, but in their estimation at that time, they said, hey, Jesus can come back any time. And, and that's still true today. He can come back at any time. And, and I, I need to even be more motivated by the fact that he is coming back, that I need to be with other people to encourage them, to build them up, to help them to discover their spiritual gift. And that's not limited to the pastoral staff. That's the role of every believer. So every, every person in a fellowship needs to be a part of some small group, a life group, a ministry, people that you connect with, people that you enjoy doing life with, people that you enjoy learning with. Maybe they're people that are at the same stage of life as you are. Maybe they're not. Hey, it's okay to mix it up because I tell you what, you need, sometimes you need the influence. Young couples need the influence of, of an older couple in their lives to help them to learn to manage the stuff that the other couple's already been through. Um, in fact, what we like here at Gateway is that when ministry is built around a small group, it's a lot more fun, right? I mean, it, it's just more fun being with your friends, doing ministry together. And, uh, and so I love it when a life group takes on a ministry project. I, I like it when a, a, a small group of people in our church say, hey, we want to do this together. <clears throat> That's the way it ought to be. In fact, I would encourage you, if you're in a life group, find some tangible ways that you can do some ministries together and it doesn't have to be something that's part of gateway. Just <clears throat> go out there on your own and say, hey, we know this widow that needs some help, help doing some things. <clears throat> Let's all just get her at her house and get those things done for her. So there's a lot of things that you can do like that. <clears throat> and um, you know, one of the things that make a difference is kind of like in a sporting event. It, it's a real thing when you got home field advantage right? Now, sometimes it doesn't always play out in your favor, <clears throat> but when you have home field advantage, there's this extra energy that's being zeroed in on the team, right? I mean, the fans behind them, the fans screaming and yelling, and they get the energy from the fans and it just, it, it causes the adrenaline to run a little more in the players. So when you do things together with a family group, you've got home field advantage. When, when you're doing things in a, as a life group or you're doing things as a men's group or a second act group or whatever, when you're doing life together and doing ministry together, you got home field advantage because you're there rooting each other on. Now, I, I want to I take a moment to just look at that New Testament model. You know, one thing about um, church, New Testament church, there was no one definitive set way of doing things. 
Now, there was some set things on what should be done, but as to how you did it, you know, the, it, it doesn't give us a lot of that. So that, that means you just have to figure out what works best in your culture and in your environment. But in the first church, um, the small groups were the base for all ministry and for all fellowship. And as you study about the New Testament church, <clears throat> you know from the book of Acts that it grew very rapidly. I mean, that initial group, you could really get it down to just the 12 disciples, uh, but they grew, they, they had a core group of about 120. That's how many were in the upper room uh, when the Holy Spirit came down upon them. But it, it, they grew quickly to 3,000 people who were baptized the very first day of the church at Pentecost. You talk about church growth, 3,000 the first day. And then a couple of chapters later, it says there were 5,000 men who came into the church. And if you got 5,000 men, you most likely have four to 5,000 women and probably 5,000 plus kids I mean, you got a, this is a rapid growing thing that's happening. And so we looked at that first church and within a matter of months, they were at 15 to 20,000 people. And so it was growing extremely rapid and it was all built around the small groups. Um, Acts 21, 20. It said, after hearing this, they praised God. And then they said, you know, dear brothers, how many thousands of Jews have, have also believed, not just the Gentiles, but the Jews. And they all follow the law of Moses very seriously. Now, this passage in Acts 21 is about 20 years after Pentecost. 20 years later. And so they were reporting to Paul when he returns to Jerusalem that literally thousands of Jews have believed. Paul was telling them what was happening on the mission field. And now they were telling Paul, hey, we've had thousands of this. In fact, the Greek word literally means tens of thousands had believed in Jesus Christ. Now, that's just an amazing record of spontaneous growth and how it was happening, even over a 20 year period. So the point I wanna make that is that in that first 20 to 25 years, the Jerusalem church had grown from 120 people to approximately in 20 years to 100,000 people, 100,000. And uh, B.H. Carroll, uh, he, uh, he was the guy who actually started and was the first president of the seminary that I went to at Southwestern. Back at the very beginning of the 1900s, that's when he started that. And, and he claimed that he said, we believe that there was 100 to 120,000 in the church by Acts chapter 21, in just the Jerusalem church. Um, so here you have a church, approximately 100,000 people, and how big was Jerusalem at that time? Most experts say that at that time, Jerusalem was probably a city of a couple of hundred thousand. 
So think about that for a moment. So you have a church that grew to 100,000 in a city of 200,000. In other words, half the city were now Christ followers. My goodness. Imagine what would happen. You know, in our community, we estimate 80% are unchurched. 80% in the South. 80%. Imagine if half of the people in our community became Christ followers, serious Christ followers. Unbelievable. In Acts chapter 5, 42, it says, and every day in the temple from house to house, they continue to teach and preach this message. Jesus is the Messiah. So they really had two types of meetings. They had a large group meeting, which is kind of like what we do every Sunday. And then they had small group meetings which is what we do in life groups and various men's ministry and women's ministries, um, youth ministries. So we have large group meetings and we have small group meetings. That's exactly how they did it in the New Testament church. They would have large group gatherings at the temple area and then they would meet in people's homes. And um, you know, the advantage of them having uh, homes like that, um, uh, or uh, doing church that way it, is that it was easy to invite other people. Uh, it, little resources were needed and there was such ultimate, there was just unlimited growth. Um, Ronald Flynn and myself next month are going to go to the Middle East where we're training uh, individuals who have converted to Christianity and are, and are now church planners. And we have the privilege of going and helping them and train them. And, and here's the cool thing about this. They're all home churches. Well, that makes it really easy. In fact, for them, because of where they live, that's really the only way they could do church. But think of how, how much resources are needed to start a home church. Very little. I mean, how much resources are needed to have a life group in your home, very little. And, and so that's why we've been able to plant way over 2,000 churches in Muslim and Hindu areas because they're all house churches. So we don't need unlimited resources to try to fund all that because they can do it. And, it. and it's much easier. It's easier for them to invite people. Now, here, here's something that really struck me. Studies have shown that the average person knows 67 people in their church, 67. Uh, whether your church is 100, 1,000, or 10,000, it doesn't matter. 67 people that you can call by name and probably know something about them or have some sort of relationship with them. And when you stop and think about it, that's a lot of people, 67. And... Um, so the reality is you don't have to know everybody in the church for a church to feel like the church, but you have to connect. You have to connect somehow. And you do that in the small groups and the life groups. And, um, that's one of the purposes of our, of our life groups. <clears throat> um, in fact, you feel like here is a life group. Here's a group of people. They know me. 
They know when I'm not there. They know when I'm sick. They're the ones that are going to call me. In fact, at Gateway, we have more ministry that happens from a life group than we do in any other way. I can't tell you how many times uh, I've gone to the hospital or I've gone to check on somebody in need and the life groups, somebody in the life groups already beat me there. I, I tell the story, uh, I, you know, cause it was true. I, I went to the hospital one time and, and somebody had been in a wreck or something. I can't remember the details. And I got to the hospital and, uh, and I said, Hey, I'm uh, pastor Don Brock. I'm, I'm here to see so-and-so. Well, there can only be two people in the room and, and their pastors are already in there. I said, no, no, you don't understand. I'm, I'm, I'm the pastor. Well, they said the person that's in there now is just, I said, I said, no, I'm the pastor. I mean, you don't, you're not getting this. Oh, come to find out their life group leader was in there and, and that was their pastor. And I said, in that moment, I realized, yes, their pastor was in the room with them. I said, this is exactly the way it needs to be. This is the way it ought to be. That the first person they called was their life group leader. That was a win. Now, I mean, my ego didn't get in, in the way of that. I'm sitting there going, this is great. This is, why, this is what it's all about. This is the way it works. And uh, so that's one of the purposes of that small group. People that know you, they're the first it's the first people you think about calling. I mean, my life group, uh, the, the ladies that are in my life group, they stay in touch all the time. They, they know when things are going on, they're praying, and then, then it's their job to tell the husbands, you know, because husbands. And, um, but much of our pastoral care happens through our small groups, through our small group ministries. So life groups and ministry Small groups, regardless of what kind of ministry is, ministry and small groups go together. And you're missing out on a group of people who really do want to care about you and who really do want to do life with you when you choose not to be in a life group. Why would you miss out on that? So let me encourage you, if you're not in a life group, you really need to step up. And, and, you know, in our church, a little over half of the people are in life groups, which is actually a good percentage compared to other churches, but I don't like to be compared to other churches. That mean, that tells me that we have almost 50% that are not in a life group and they're missing out on a huge, they're missing out on a very important, encouraging part of ministry. Um, Let's walk through Acts chapter six. And, and I want us to see some new, a New Testament example. Verse one, but as the believers rapidly multiplied, so growing a church is biblical. And I really believe when life groups are done well and small groups are done well, a church is going to grow. There were rumblings of discontent. So whenever you're growing, it's going to cause some problems. Now, some problems are good. Some problems are not so good. But usually there's going to, whenever there's a growing church, there's going to be some problems. The Greek speaking believers complained 
about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in a daily distribution of food. So back then, you know, there wasn't social ministry. There was not uh, support from the government. They didn't have social security. They didn't have any of that kind of stuff. And, And so if a person was a widow, unless they had a strong family presence, they were in trouble. I mean, a lot of them would just starve to death and there was nobody to take care of them. And so the church took on that role. <clears throat> so the church was growing really fast. And, um, and some of the Greek-speaking believers, some of the non-Jews were complaining about the Jewish believers saying, hey, we're being discriminated against. Our widows are. So problems often come from unmet needs. In fact, Usually when a problem arises at Gateway, it can be traced back to an unmet need. And we think about how we can meet that need. Now that's different from an unmet want. You know, you may want certain things, but that's not necessarily a need. And and so a lot of times the problems in a church are based on a need that's just not being met. And then we try to find ways to make sure that need is being met. It said, so the 12 called uh, a meeting, the 12 disciples called a meeting of all the believers. And they say, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. Now, this is a reminder to me, pastors cannot meet everybody's needs. And the pastor that thinks that he has to meet everybody's needs then he's already guaranteed that his church is probably going to stay at about 125 people. It can't grow beyond that because he cannot emotionally and physically take care of more than people, more people than that. So when I see a pastor that thinks he has to do everything, he's got a bad view. He's got bad theology for one thing, because that's not what scripture teaches. And he's not willing to share leadership. That's not good either. And that's bad theology. So the pastors cannot meet everybody's needs. That's why, do you know every major ministry in this church is run by non-staff people? I mean, by lay people, by you? Almost every one. And if it were for the volunteers in our church, Gateway would shut down. I mean, it was, it's amazing just even today, how many volunteers it took just to get, have this happen today. So verse three, and so brothers select seven men who are well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom And we will give them this responsibility. So that's volunteers doing ministry. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. So my number one role and the senior staff's number one role is prayer and teaching and equipping the saints 
And you guys, you're the saints. Verse five, everyone liked this idea and they chose the following. And then they give the list of people and Stephen was the one we really know about. He said he was full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Verse six, it says, and, and the seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them and laid their hands on them. You know, I, in reading that, that, that's something the gateway, we could probably do a better job at, that we seek to anoint those that are leading the various ministries in our church. I'm gonna make a note of that one. You know, we, we, gotta, do, we gotta do a better job with that one. And, uh, and so, so God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, half the city eventually within 20 years. And many of the Jewish priests were converted as well. So the hardcore Jews, the priests, they were becoming Christ followers. Amazing. So when done biblically, then a church will experience healthy growth. There's healthy growth and there's unhealthy growth. And unhealthy growth, it may look good on the inside, but it's poison on the, on, I mean, it looks good on the outside, but it can be poison on the inside. So, the first church, they had such a great model. Um, they brought support in times of crisis, spiritual support, physical support, emotional support. That's what needs to happen in a life group. They, they had Bible study and doctrinal teaching. That's what needs to happen in a life group. They had ministry support in the church. They ran the ministries. They did outreach. I mean, I tell you, the easiest way to bring a non-believer or a unchurched person into the church is through a small group. That's the easiest way of doing it. And then they worked on people's spiritual gifts. And something I've said a, a quite a bit, when you use your spiritual gift in the church, that's called ministry. When you use your spiritual gift outside the church, that's called missions. And both need to happen. So if you want some benefits of connecting, you'll find encouragement, You'll find spiritual accountability. We all need that. You'll find prayer support. You'll find that you've got people to share the load with. And you've got people to celebrate victories with. To celebrate victories with. We had a young man... <clears throat> Uh, in our, who grew up in our church. He is actually helping to serve in another church. Um, but he grew up in our church and his parents are still in our church. And um, <clears throat> he came down with COVID pneumonia. And um, medically, he probably should not have survived. But our church got to praying. We had a prayer time here at the church. People were praying not just in our church, but all over. Other churches were praying. 
<clears throat> the church where he's involved was praying. They were people all over praying. And I, I was talking to the mom and I said, I'm absolutely convinced that that's the only reason your son survived, was that God responded to the faith and prayers. Man, how tragic and sad it must be to go through a life-altering incident and not have a spiritual support group who's praying for you, who's encouraging you, who's there for you. That's the kind of person that dies alone, faces life alone. So, What's it going to take for us to get above 50%? Well, we're already above 50%. What's it going to take to get 100% for our people to be in a small group? If you're, if you're part of that 50% that's not, let me encourage you to start exploring. Um, you know, we're in the process of... of uh, <clears throat> deciding who the next life group leader is going to be for our church. Our, he's going to run the discipleship group ministry. And um, that's one of the things I'm looking for is somebody who can be an encourager, an encourager to find and train life group leaders and then be an encourager for people to go and get involved in a life group that are already in the church. Let's experience Christ together. Let's pray.